millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 32, The Ottoman Empire. Thanks for listening in. So last time, we finally reached the end of Ivan the Terrible's reign. I drew my conclusions, which were mostly, well, nearly all negative, come to think about it. And then we briefly covered the far less dramatic life and times of his son, Feodor the Bellringer whose death marked the end of the Rurikid dynasty, which had been in place since the year 862. This week we're going to be taking a break from the main narrative, and instead we'll be doing some background stuff that involves the relatively new power to Russia's south, the Ottoman Empire. And I suppose about justify it, uh, the reasons for doing this are twofold. First, there would be a series of 12 wars, or there will be a series of 12 wars, fought between Russia and the Ottoman Empire between the 16th and the 20th centuries. So they obviously either had some shared ambitions and saw each other as a threat, or they didn't like one another very much. Probably a bit of both. Either way, their destinies and futures will become entwined. And then secondly, well... I just think it's a good idea and hopefully, like me, you'll find the Ottomans and their world to be amazing, mysterious, intriguing, fascinating and at times baffling in equal measure. Just before we start though, and very quickly, a big thanks to everyone who has subscribed or followed the podcast. As I've said previously, it really does make me feel good to see so many of you enjoying the show. It just helps to keep me motivated and enthused. One thing though is I really haven't had too many questions or comments or concerns raised over the past year. And and yes, I've been doing this now for over a year. So if you do want to get in touch, you can very easily uh, on Twitter. I'm at HistoryRussia1. Or there's the website or the Podbean phone app. I'll give you the website address, which is historyofrussia.podbean.com. And if all else fails, then there's email, which is nordicworld, or one word, at outlook.com. Okay, I've nothing else to mention, so let's crack on and do some history of the Ottoman Empire. Oh, and a tiny bit of Russia as well. So, I've briefly mentioned the Ottomans in a couple of past episodes, but I may have left you with the impression that they just suddenly appeared in 1453, captured Constantinople, changed a few things around, and then took over the territories that had been previously ruled by the Byzantine Empire. Well, if I have given that impression, and I think I may have done, it's now time to correct it and put the record straight. 
So let's start at more or less the beginning and look at who the Ottomans were and how they managed to end up with an empire that stretched across three continents. So the Ottomans were one of a number of different ethnic Turkic groups that by the late 13th century had settled in and claimed a part of Anatolia or Asia Minor, which is the main bit of modern day Turkey. And they were called Ottomans because their founder and first recognized leader or sultan was a man called Osman. And his name became anglicized to Othman for some reason. And from there we get Ottoman for some reason. Not much is known about the man himself, but we do know that over the next 50 years, from around 1300 to 1350, Osman and then his son Orhan pretty quickly established themselves as top dogs in northern and central Anatolia. And then they took large chunks of territory on both sides of the Sea of Marmara from the steadily and terminally declining Byzantines. And then Orhan's sons, Suleiman and Murad, further extended Ottoman rule into northern Greece and then eventually into the rest of the southern Balkans, so that by the time of Murad's death in 1389, Byzantine territory consisted of the city of Constantinople and its hinterland, plus the Peloponnese Peninsula in Greece and a bunch of Mediterranean islands. So the Byzantines were effectively surrounded by the Ottomans and the writing was well and truly on the wall. The first Sultan to have a crack at taking Constantinople was Murad's son Bayezid or to give him his full name Bayezid the Thunderbolt. And he first laid siege to the city in 1394 and over the next eight years he had several more attempts, all unsuccessful before giving up and deciding instead to turn his attention to the other Turkic parts of Anatolia that remained outside of Ottoman control. But unfortunately for Bayezid, somebody else had the same idea, and that someone was our old friend Tamerlane. So around the year 1400, and before any actual fighting had taken place, the two rulers had the medieval equivalent of a social media spat. Now, normally, I wouldn't condone this kind of behaviour, but one of the letters from Tamerlane to Bayezid is actually pretty funny. So, let me just get into Tamerlane mode, which is the same as Genghis Khan or last week's Joseph Stalin mode. And just to keep the record straight, I've just captured the gist of the letter. Believe me, you are just an ant. Don't seek to fight the elephants, for they'll crush you under their feet. You don't have the guts to contend with us, and if you don't follow our advice, you'll regret it. But of course, Bayezid didn't follow Tamerlane's advice, and at the fateful Battle of Ankara on the 20th of July 1402, the Ottoman army was defeated. Now, Bayezid tried to escape, but he was captured and taken to Timur. When Timur stroked Tamerlane saw Bayezid, he laughed. Now Bayezid was offended by this and he told Timur that it was indecent to laugh at misfortune. To which Timur replied, It is clear then that fate does not value power and possession of vast lands if it distributes them to the afflicted. 
to you the crooked and to me the lame. Now we know that Tamerlane was actually lame but there's no mention anywhere that I can find that Bayezid was similarly impacted and so I'm guessing that Timur's term crooked may be meant dishonest. Don't know. But many sources claim that Bayezid was mistreated by the Timurids when he was held in captive. However, writers and historians from Timur's own court reported that Bayezid was treated well, well they would, wouldn't they, and that Timur even mourned his death, which took place a year later in 1403. Anyway, I'm digressing like mad here. Let's get back on track. So, after Bayezid's death, there was an interregnum or civil war as his various sons fought each other for pole position. And then there was a period of consolidation before Mehmed II, or Mehmed Fatih, or the Conqueror, appeared on the scene to take Constantinople in 1453, a feat we covered a few episodes ago. And then he united the whole of Anatolia under Ottoman rule, and then he invaded and took over parts of the central and southern Balkan Peninsula that his predecessors hadn't quite got to. And then after all that, and on the home front, Mehmed undertook many political and social reforms. He encouraged the arts and sciences, and by the end of his reign in 1481, his rebuilding programme had transformed Constantinople, aka Istanbul, into a thriving imperial capital. And justifiably, Mehmet is considered a hero in modern-day Turkey and parts of the wider Muslim world. And Istanbul's Fatih district, the Fatih Sultan Mehmet Bridge and the Fatih Mosque are all named after him. His successor was another Bayezid, Bayezid II. And it was during his time in charge that Ivan III, or Ivan the Great of Moscow, who, remember, was Ivan the Terrible's grandfather, undertook a bit of diplomatic bridge-building by first forming an alliance with the Crimean Khanate and then using that relationship to open a Muscovite embassy in Istanbul in 1495. The short eight-year reign of Bayezid's son, Selim I, or Selim the Grim, apparently he had a bit of a temper, between 1512 and 1520, saw the defeat of the Egyptian Mamluks and the subsequent expansion of the Ottomans into North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, where the sultans would now become the custodians of the two holy mosques of Mecca and Medina, and the empire would become the pre-eminent Muslim state. So impressive stuff, but because this was all happening far away to the south, the growing Ottoman Empire was not seen as a threat in Moscow or indeed in any other European capital city. Well, all of that was about to change, as Selim's successor was the aptly named Suleiman the Magnificent, and he would preside over what would be seen as the empire's most successful period. Suleiman, and we'll come to the Magnificent bit in a minute, decided to strike north into the Balkans and west into the Mediterranean, with Belgrade falling to the Ottomans in 1521, the island of Rhodes between 1522 and 23, and at the Battle of Mohach in August 1526, Suleiman smashed the military strength of Hungary. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And from there, he continued north. And in 1529, he laid siege to the city of Vienna. And although ultimately this campaign ended in failure, the spring rains were heavier and longer than normal, and the winter snows were earlier and heavier than normal, the Habsburg and Ottoman empires would now be locked into a century and a half of bitter on-again, off-again conflict. So now that Suleiman had Central Europe's full attention, and had raised his empire's profile abroad. Oh, and by the way, the Sultan had also annexed much of the Middle East during a series of conflicts with Shiite Safavid Persia. He could spend his time doing all of those other things that combined with his military exploits would earn him the title of the Magnificent. The Sultan personally instituted comprehensive and far-reaching judicial reforms relating to society, religion, education, taxation and criminal law, and he also became a great patron of culture, overseeing the empire's golden age in terms of its artistic, literary, and most stunningly, its architectural development. And if you get a chance, look up a guy called Mimar Sinan, that's M-I-M-A-R-S-I-N-A-N. Now, he was the chief Ottoman architect and civil engineer for Suleiman, his son Selim II, and his grandson Murad III. Now, Mimar was responsible for the construction of more than 300 major structures, uh, mosques, bridges, schools, aqueducts. And I think, from my view, the best one is, if you look up the Selimaya Mosque in Erdine, in European Turkey, and just take a look at, I mean, it doesn't do it justice, but it is considered to be his masterpiece. Oh, and on his days off, Suleiman also found the time to become a goldsmith and an accomplished poet. And breaking with tradition, he married Hurem Sultan, a woman from his harem, who was an Orthodox Christian of Balkan origin, who had converted to Islam and who became famous in the West by the name of Roxalana. Suleiman died in 1566, having ruled the empire magnificently for 46 years. And he was succeeded by his son Selim II, a.k.a. Selim the Sot, or Drunk, who, unlike his father, preferred to stay out of the limelight and rule from the palace via his first minister or grand vizier. Oh, and he liked to drink or two. It was during Selim II's reign in 1569 
that the Ottomans attempted to relieve Ivan the Terrible of one of his recent conquests, Astrakhan. But, as we recently found out, this proved to be unsuccessful, and a year later, peace terms were agreed. However, in 1571, there was that joint raid on Moscow involving the Empire and its Crimean and Nodai allies, which resulted in the city being burnt to the ground for a second time. And Selim's armies also saw action in the Arabian Peninsula, with successful campaigns being fought in the Hejaz and Yemen. And the Hejaz is the sort of middle part of the Red Sea coast of Arabia, where Mecca uh, and Jeddah are. And the Ottomans managed to also capture the island of Cyprus from Venice in 1571. But it was that last event that drew the attention of the recently formed Holy League, which was an alliance put together by the Pope and which consisted of the Papal States, Habsburg, Spain, Malta, Venice, Genoa, and a handful of other Italian city-states, whose sole purpose was to break the Ottomans' domination of the Eastern Mediterranean. And this they did, temporarily, at the Great Naval Battle of Lepanto, off the coast of Greece, in 1572. Selim died in 1574, and whilst his reign can't be seen as a failure, many historians saw his time in charge of the empire as representing the beginning of a decline in Ottoman fortunes. Other scholars, though, have preferred to label the period from Selim's rule through to the end of the 17th century as one of adaptation or transformation from an expansionist state into a bureaucratic empire. But however you look at it, the heady days of Suleiman the Magnificent were over, and future sultans, who would still be in charge of a rich and stable empire, were just not made of the same stuff, and they would also find that the opportunities for easy victories and further expansion into Europe were no longer a reality. So anyway, that brings Ottoman affairs more or less up to the point we've reached in the main Russian narrative. And there'll be no further conflict of interest between the two until 1676. But when we do reach that point, probably in about a month or a month and a half's time, if you're listening to each episode as it comes out, it won't feel like the Ottomans have just suddenly appeared out of the blue. Before we finish this week, though, there are just a couple of other interesting facts about the Ottoman Empire that I want to cover. And the first is their system of succession. You see, unlike most of Europe, including more recently Russia, where usually a king's or emperor's heir or successor typically would be his eldest son, in Ottoman Turkey, between the 14th and late 16th century, an entirely different practice was followed. When a sultan died, his sons, and there would be many of them because of the harem system, would fight and kill off one another until there was only one left standing. And sometimes the sons wouldn't wait for the incumbent to die. Under Suleiman the Magnificent, strife between his sons caused so much internal turmoil that Suleiman ordered the deaths of two of them, leaving Selim II as his sole heir. Gradually, though, this system morphed into one of effective primogeniture as the role of chief consort rose to greater prominence and her favourite son would effectively become the heir. 
However, unlike the earlier period, when the Sultan had already defeated his brothers and potential rivals for the throne in battle, these Sultans had the problem of many living male siblings who could potentially act as the focus for rival factions. So, to prevent any attempt at seizing the throne, on accession, the Sultan practiced fratricide. And this method of deciding things reached its zenith when Mehmed III, who was Selim II's grandson, had 19 of his brothers and half-brothers strangled by his royal executioners, many of whom who were deaf, mute or half-witted to ensure their absolute loyalty. As the decades passed though, the ritual killing of the Sultan's male relatives was gradually replaced by a lifetime of solitary confinement in something called the Golden Cage or Cafes, a room in the harem from where the Sultan's brothers could never escape. Unless, of course, they suddenly became heir, as happened on more than one occasion. The trouble is, on the rare occasions when this did occur, the effects of being held in confinement, sometimes for many years, meant that the new Sultan was mentally disturbed, had no grasp on reality, and was effectively unable to reign. The other item that I wanted to mention, and which cropped up during my research, was something that had had an impact throughout Europe, the introduction, or part introduction, of the Gregorian calendar in 1582. Now, without getting into too much detail, the Gregorian calendar replaced and reformed the Julian calendar, which had been widely used in Europe since around 45 BC, but was, by the 16th century, out of whack with a solar year. So in October 1582, the new calendar was implemented to arrest the drift, which literally meant that Thursday the 4th of October 1582 was followed by Friday the 15th of October 1582. So payday came early that month. But due to the religious upheaval that had been recently experienced across Europe, only the Catholic countries adopted the change. So that now you had a situation where, for example, Spain, it could be any other Catholic country, date-wise, was 11 days ahead of Sweden or any of the Protestant countries. Now, all of this had little impact on the Ottomans, who at the time used the Islamic calendar, or the Russians, who still used the old Byzantine calendar. But for the Protestant countries of Europe, not adopting the new calendar was seen as a way of differentiating themselves from the Catholic countries and perhaps sticking it to the Pope just a bit, even though they must have known that the old Julian calendar was scientifically no longer fit for purpose. And one of those Protestant countries, yeah, guess which one? England, in what was a further snub to the Pope and the Holy League that I referred to earlier in the episode, had no qualms in reaching out to the Ottomans in the spirit of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Numerous envoys and correspondence were exchanged between Elizabeth I and Sultan Murad III, who was Selim's son. And in one letter, Murad noted that Islam and Protestantism had much more in common than either did with Roman Catholicism, as both rejected the worship of idols. And he argued for a formal alliance between the two nations. And to the dismay of Catholic Europe, England exported tin 
and lead for cannon casting and munitions to the Ottoman Empire. And Elizabeth seriously discussed joint military operations with Murad III during the outbreak of the Spanish Armada conflict in 1585. It's no wonder really, is it, that no one votes for England or the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest anymore. Okay, that's where we'll leave things for this week. Next time around, we'll be back onto the main story and we'll be investigating the reign of the new Tsar, Boris Gudunov, and the disastrous period of Russian history known simply as the Smutnoya Vremya, or for short, the Smuta, which translates roughly into the time of troubles. So anyway, until then, and as always, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.